God's number one goal is the redemption of his image creature. And that's you and I today. And we need to be encouraged that we, we take that warning about the consequences of sin, but we put our hope in his redemption and the power of his blood, the power of his name. <clears throat> Amen. We're going to run out of room down the, in the back there in infant corner soon. It's like it's, it's soon it's going to be you have to be this tall to sit down here. There's so many little ones in that back corner. You have to soundproof it. Acts chapter 1. Preach on a subject I've preached on many times, but feel the direction of the Lord today to do this. Acts chapter 1, starting to read at verse 1. <clears throat> says, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Let me pause right there for a second because there's some words in there. You're thinking, what in the world? Treatise basically means an account or a record in this context. So Luke, who is the writer of the book of Acts, they're saying, I've put this, this, this writing together. Now, the word Theophilus, Theophilus is pretty apparently a Greek word, simply means a friend of God. There are some people that think it was written to the church as the friends of God as a whole. Most commentators lean towards it being a specific person. Exactly which way? We don't really know. Probably doesn't really matter. But Luke addresses this person or persons, whatever flavor you prefer, both in the book of Acts chapter 1 and also in the beginning of his gospel. So in verse 2, Until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them, he didn't suggest it, he commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me. For John, that's John the Baptist, truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence, or not long from now. And when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, Wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. Amen. I want to stop there. I'm getting going off, off track already. But it's interesting that people get hung up on what's happening in the world. Jesus' focus was not the natural kingdom of Israel. They were saying, Lord, is this when you're going to put us back at the top of the tree? You're going to make us the king of the hill again. The Lord was basically saying, that's not what's important right now. We're looking around at a world that is looking at every conspiracy theory, every crazy thing they can try to find to understand what's going on in the world. And even people of faith are getting caught up in things like, is the vaccination the mark of the beast? Is the Antichrist rising on the scene? I read a quote the other day that really resonated with my spirit. It said, nowhere in the scripture is the church told to look for the Antichrist. We are told to look for Jesus Christ. So don't get hung up on what's going on around us. Let's look for him. That's what matters. You, I mean, you can have an opinion. That's fine. I'll give you a revelation. The vaccine is not the mark of the beast. But we're looking for the return of Jesus Christ. 
We, 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 prophecy matters and the scripture is given to us to, but all of the signs that we are given are given to us so that we would look for him. It's not so we can get obsessed with this government or this power or this legislation or what's going on here and what's going on there, but that we would say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Don't get hung up on the junk. Look for Jesus Christ. Amen. That's not my message. Verse 8. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld or while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Amen. With the help of the Lord for hopefully just a few minutes this morning, my message title is simply this, What's Stopping You? What's Stopping You? After Jesus had risen from the dead, the Bible tells us he spent a little more time with his disciples, probably around five or six weeks, which came to a conclusion in Acts chapter 1 when he ascended into heaven before their eyes. Part of this final communication that the Lord gave to his faithful followers was that they were to stay in Jerusalem. They were to wait for the promise of the Father. Or they were to wait. We, we understand clearly that he was talking about receiving the Holy Ghost. Because we see that in the very next chapter of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, that was where we get the name Pentecostal from. That's why we call ourselves, we, we are Pentecostal by our experience. There was 120 people who did what Jesus said. You know, things happen when you do what Jesus says. He said, wait in Jerusalem. They were praying. They're having a prayer meeting. And God poured out His Spirit for the very first time. And all 120 people spoke in other tongues or other languages that they had never learned before, which was miraculous evidence that God had filled them with His Spirit. And I'm glad that God still fills people with His Spirit today. I'm glad that He filled me with His Spirit. I'm glad that He's filled you with His Spirit. And if you haven't been filled with the Holy Ghost, it is a promise that God wants you to experience. Amen. In verse 8 of Acts chapter 1, Jesus told them that when this happened, that when they received this promise, that they would also receive power. And that power would be upon them to be witnesses unto Him in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth or to the ends of the earth, otherwise known as Perth, Western Australia. And so the church was born in Jerusalem and large numbers of people were being saved. 3,000 here, 5,000 there. It was exciting. It was, an, it was a time in church history that we look back to and we, we, it, it stirs us today because we have the same experience just like Peter could stand up in Acts chapter 2, point to the prophet Joel and say, this is that that Joel spoke about. 2,000 years later, we point back to Acts chapter 2 and we say, this is that that happened in the second chapter of Acts when it happens to us. It was an exciting time, but it, the thing is, it wasn't really getting out of Jerusalem. The Lord had told them, you shall be witnesses, but he didn't just say in Jerusalem, they weren't really getting out into Judea or Samaria, or anywhere near the ends of the earth at that stage. But then, as you read on through the book of Acts, a young man named Stephen was stoned to death in chapter 7. 
And then this, I guess it's an appropriate word, this crazy guy named Saul of Tarsus is doing everything he can to crush the young church. In one verse, it describes him as breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. He, at a minimum, he wanted them imprisoned. He would have been happy to see them executed. Such was his passion. And then Philip, who was one of Stephen's colleagues, if you like, went down to Samaria, went down to this city that was mixed race, not all Gentile, not all Jewish, but a a blend of both. And he preached Christ unto them, it tells us in Acts chapter 8 and verse 5. And that power, that witness that Jesus had said would be upon them, was upon Philip because when he preached in that city, the whole city was turned upside down. The whole city began to respond to the gospel message. They heard the message of repentance, of needing to be saved from their sin. They saw the miracles that were done at the hand of Philip and those that no doubt worked with him. And the Bible tells us that they were baptized in Jesus' name. And when news got back to the elders of the church leaders who were still in Jerusalem about what was going on in Samaria, they sent down to them Peter and John that they would pray for the people, that they could receive the Holy Ghost just like they had in Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem. And we know that that's what happened when they went down and prayed for those new believers. And so the trouble, if you like, the persecution that came upon the church in Jerusalem, God actually used that to give the church a little push into the mission field. They were enjoying the comforts of what they were familiar with. And to be fair, if, if we were in a revival and 3,000 people were being saved and 5,000, we'd probably be happy just to stay right here and have church, you know, and see it all happening. But there was instruction to go beyond. And so the Lord stirred things up a little bit, allowed things to happen, gave them a little push onto the mission field. But, but during all of this, during all this incredible revival, it's in Jerusalem, it's now spread to Samaria. There's another well-known story that's taking place in the same chapter, and it's happening at about the same time as the revival in Samaria. And in Acts chapter 8 and verse 26, it says, And the angel of the Lord spoke unto Philip, saying, Arise, leave this citywide revival, go toward the south under the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure. He was the federal treasurer and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot read Isaiah Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said unto Philip, go near and join thyself to this chariot. Uh, You try to think, how does that work? Chariots come along the road. How do you just join yourself to a chariot? It's not like a public bus where there's a platform to step onto, but Somehow he connected himself with this man. In verse 30, it says, And Philip ran thither unto him. Maybe he was jogging along beside the chariot. And heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you read? It's a good question. And the man responded and said, How can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. So it seems he was jogging along beside the chariot. The place of the scripture where he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, 
His judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. We know, if we were looking that up today, it's taken from what we know as Isaiah chapter 53. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Who's he talking about? Is it himself or some other man? Then Philip, I love verse 35, Philip opened his mouth, began at the same scripture. Don't say, he said, well, don't worry about that Old Testament stuff. He said, he began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. When Philip's directed by the angel of the Lord to go down to the desert, this Ethiopian man is on his way home after having traveled to Jerusalem. And so it is likely that while Philip was preaching in Samaria, this man was possibly on his way to Jerusalem to worship. He may have already been in Jerusalem. Some commentators suggest that he was possibly even there during the time of the crucifixion, although I, I, tend to don't, I don't think that's probably likely. But a couple of interesting points that go with this, this account in the Scripture. Ethiopia in the ancient world was, was, was a region larger than what we know today as the nation of Ethiopia. It was almost a kingdom at times. And it was not uncommon in the ancient world, I'm glad the kids are upstairs, for men who served in royal households and kingdoms to be castrated, which is what the word eunuch means. It removed any potential problems or threats, particularly when the countries were overseen by a queen rather than a king. And the connection between Ethiopia and Israel is possibly greater than we might think. There are apparently around about 100,000 Ethiopian Jews in Israel who make claim Again, you can research this for yourself if you like, if you want to read something else other than the coronavirus conspiracy theories. They make claims that they are the descendants of the lost tribe of Dan, one of the tribes of Israel. And the royal bloodline of Ethiopia traditionally claimed to be descendants of a relationship between King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. There's just some interesting points that go with that. But they do, these points do give us a little bit of insight into how an Ethiopian man was traveling to Jerusalem to worship. The worship of the God of Israel was obviously not a completely strange concept to this man. And another thing, where did he get his copy of the Scriptures from that he was reading? Did he get it in Jerusalem when he was there, which would have been incredibly expensive? Or did he already have it with him while he was traveling? You know, there wasn't a Kurong back then. There was no Bibles online or anything like that. Somewhere this Ethiopian man got a copy of the Word of God or at least the book of Isaiah. You've, being on scrolls was kind of hard to carry the whole Old Testament. But, but when Philip, Philip asked him, he said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, basically, no. He said, I need somebody to unpack this for me, somebody to explain it for me. And this world still needs us to be able to preach the Word of God to them and unpack the Word of God to them. And, and he, he asked the question, who is the writer speaking about when he talks about these these very solemn things about himself or some other man and Philip begins to preach to him about Jesus and so when you bring we've expanded that a little bit to try to bring it back together what it does is it gives us a glimpse into what is taking place in the Ethiopian's heart while Philip's talking to him because by this stage he's traveled all the way to Jerusalem to worship which was not an easy trip by chariot it was significant in that it was no doubt expensive. It took a significant amount of time. And travel in those days came with a amount of risk to your own personal safety. 
So this man was sincere. It wasn't just something he thought one day, hey, let's, let's warm up the chariot and head to Jerusalem. The trip had purpose. The trip, he, he, he had something he wanted to achieve. And, and maybe he heard them talk about Jesus when he was in Jerusalem. We don't know. But what we do know from the law of Moses is that he would not have been allowed into the temple because he was a Gentile. He was somebody who was not a Jew. It's also very likely that he would have not even been allowed into the outer court of the Gentiles because he was a eunuch. So his, his ethnicity was one strike. His physical impairment was another strike. And yet he'd traveled so far, and I imagine on the return journey, he no doubt felt dissatisfied, discouraged. He'd gone all that way to experience what we would call rejection. All that time, all that money and the risk, only to be able to watch from afar. Something in his heart wants more. That's obvious because he's on his way back and what's he doing? He's reading the Word of God. He hasn't got a clue what he's reading. But there's something in him that is connected to the reason he went to Jerusalem. He wants to know there's something inside this man's heart. And when there's something in your heart, God will always reach for you. He begins to read this. It's, it's not just, he didn't, you know... You know, you, you hear, we used to say humorously of people, they, I want to hear from God. They open their Bibles, close their eyes and point, you know, and hope that the Lord will, that's not a good practice. Don't do that. But, you know, it's, it's not a coincidence that he's in Isaiah. He hasn't just gone, oh, this will do. But God has orchestrated. He's orchestrated the passage of Scripture. He's orchestrated his physical location. He's even orchestrated the hunger in this man's heart. And he's orchestrated an evangelist to meet him on a road and give him an answer to his questions because he reads in this passage of a man who would be humiliated and he knew how that felt he was an important man but in jerusalem he would have been humiliated he reads of a man with no generation no descendants to follow him and he knew how that felt as well but then philip tells him that this man that is written about in isaiah is Jesus Christ who would die for every sinner, who would take away their humiliation, who would take away their shame, and who would wash their sins away. It is not recorded in the passage, but it is obvious that Philip spoke to the eunuch about the importance of repenting of our sins and being baptized in Jesus' name. It is obvious because in in verse 36 of chapter 8, it says, as they went on their way, They came under certain water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What does hinder me to be baptized? He'd obviously heard about baptism. And now he wants to know what stops me from doing what you are telling me I need to do. He said, on this trip, I've been turned away at every single point. I've traveled so far. I'm heading home. I'm disappointed. I'm unfulfilled. I would know what he wants more. He needs more. He doesn't know how to get it. He's no doubt tired of being rejected, tired of being told that's as close as you can come. You're not allowed to come any further. His race, his culture, his ethnicity, his physical limitations. Philip, what is the catch this time? You're telling me this message about this Jesus and about my need to be washed in in water in the name of Jesus Christ. What stops me now? And in verse 37, Philip responds and says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. Let me make it very clear. When you believe the gospel with all your heart, repentance automatically comes with that. 
When you hear the gospel message, that belief generates a desire to turn from sin and to walk with God. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I don't know how long Philip was talking to him. I don't know how long they were in that conversation before they got to the water, but there was enough time for Philip to say that prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He died for the sins of the world. He, he ushered in the need to be born again of water and spirit. And it stirred in that. He, he still didn't understand everything. I don't care how highly educated he was. He still didn't have all the pieces put together. But the hunger in the Ethiopian's heart was like, I want what you're talking about. This is what I've been looking for. This is why I went to Jerusalem. He's halfway home and he thinks it's been a waste of time, but God meets him on a desert highway. And Philip says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answers and says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Amen. Philip says, if you believe that, there's nothing stopping you now. Verse 38, and he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water. They, they got out of the chariot, went into the water. So that gets rid of the idea that we should be sprinkled. Both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when, he, and when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip. And the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Rejoicing. Such is the love of God. Such is the love of God that for one soul, one soul, he will arrange a chance interaction, a, a, a circumstance. He'll, he'll find a way to cross somebody's path because, of, you know, everywhere this man had went, there'd been roadblock after roadblock after, no, sorry, you're not eligible. No, sorry, you're disqualified. No, sorry, you have to watch from the same difference. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Rejection at every point. And yet halfway home, still trying to find an answer. He has an encounter not just with the preacher, but with the God that sent the preacher to him. Amen. What hinders you from being baptized in Jesus' name this morning? What is it that hinders us from obeying the gospel? Is it our culture? Is it our, our tradition? Is it because you were baptized when you were a baby? Or you were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? You will not find anywhere in the New Testament, a single person baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. does not happen. Everybody that was baptized in the book of Acts was baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not a question about anybody's sincerity. We're not saying you weren't sincere. We're not saying you don't have faith. We're saying this is what the book says. But when somebody says, what do I need to do? And then we hear the truth as tradition is a powerful thing. It get, its fingers get into our heart and it's hard for us to acknowledge, well, that which I've trusted in for a long time is not actually biblical, but we need to do what the Word of God says. What is it that hinders us today? What stops us from having our sin and our shame washed away? Are we embarrassed? Are we uncomfortable? Are we, are we, we don't want people to see us. You know, one of the awesome things about humanity that all of us have, none of us are immune from this, is we're all great, great at making excuses when we don't want to do something. We're all great at saying, well, maybe next time, maybe next week, maybe next month. But it matters. It matters. It matters. You know, you've got to have your sins washed away. 
If you plan on going to heaven, you've got to have your sins washed away because no sin will enter there. You cannot wash them away yourself. It's only in the blood and the name of Jesus Christ that your sins can be washed away. And no matter how sincere our tradition may be, tradition is not going to get one soul into heaven. Not one single soul. Oh, but I believe in God. Fantastic. I've gone to church most of my life. That's a privilege. But unless you've obeyed the gospel... Unless we've been born again of water and spirit. I'm a good person. We love good people. I give. We love givers. I do good things. The Lord wants us to do good things. But unless we're washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, we are still in our sins. That's what the Bible says. You know, there are people that have, I don't know, I didn't take the time to look up the proper name. They have these obsessive disorders where they wash their hands over and over and over and over and over again because they just never seemed it's 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 a problem they never seem to feel like they're clean enough they do it again and again to the point that their their skin is damaged their their hands are cracked and broken because there's something in them they can't get clean and it does not matter how good a person you are it doesn't matter how much you give. It doesn't matter how many people you help. It doesn't matter if you've been going to the same church as far back as your family tree exists. You cannot wash yourself. You cannot wash yourself. But surely, Pastor, if I was baptized another way and I was sincere that the Lord will recognize that. He'll recognize your faith, but he'll give you an opportunity to do it right. Acts chapter 19 and verse 1 says, It came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coasts, came to Ephesus. And he found certain disciples. That's the word we're stuck on lately, disciples. And he said unto them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? It's a good question to ask somebody when they tell you they're a Christian. And they said unto him, we have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. They'd never heard of it. They're a bit like the Ethiopian. How can I understand? Unless somebody tells me. And he said unto them, well, okay, well, how were you baptized? And they said, under John's baptism. They'd been baptized. They had faith. They did what they believed was the right thing to do. And then Paul said, John truly baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him. That is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they said, well, I've already been baptized once. That'll do me. That's how my grandma was baptized. My great-grandma, we've all been baptized that way. Once is enough. The Lord knows my heart. I've heard all the reasons. But it says when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Nobody questioned the sincerity of their faith. Please, that's not, never my goal is to question anybody's sincerity. But when you, have, when you hear the gospel message that there is only one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, you have a choice to make. You have a choice to make. Will I do what the Lord says? Or will I just sit in my excuse? Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22, to give you some context, the Apostle Paul, who was once the Saul of Tarsus, is giving his testimony. He's telling them about the people he's speaking to, he's talking to them about what happened to him, what, what was his experience. And if you, you want to find a parallel, you go back to Acts chapter 8, I believe it is, where this actually 
This, that's where it was live. That's where it actually took place. But here in Acts chapter 22, Paul is, is sharing what happened to him. And in verse 12, it says, And one Ananias, we talked about him last week as being a certain disciple. One Ananias, a devout man, according to the Lord, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there, came unto me. He came unto Saul of Tarsus, terrified because of Saul of Tarsus's reputation. And he stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, as an act of faith, receive thy sight. And the same hour I looked upon him, God touched his sight. And he said, the God of our fathers has chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will and see that just one and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. For thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. And now, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. If anybody had tradition, the Apostle Paul had tradition. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He kept, he, he kept everything. He tithed of the herbs. He tithed. He was a law keeper to every dot on every I and every cross on every T. He, did all, he kept the Passover. He was obsessive about detail. In fact, he talks about, he says, you know, you think you've got a heritage? Let me, let me put mine up against yours and see who wins. He said, but all of those things, all of those things, he said, I, I leave them behind. He said, all that stuff's of no value to me because it says, why tarriest thou? In the New Living Translation, Acts 22 and 16, says, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. Don't sit in your excuse. Get up and be baptized. Have your sins washed away. How? By calling on the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. And this man who probably could quote so much more scripture than Ananias. I dare say he was, he was a champion Bible quizzer. He could probably even beat Sister Jolena. He, was a, he knew the word of God. Ananias probably, in terms of knowledge, couldn't even compete with the Apostle Paul. But under the anointing of the Holy Ghost, he stood and he said to Paul, what are you waiting for? Get up. And get baptized in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm asking you this morning, what's stopping you? What are you waiting for? Amen. We have water. The baptistry's full. I filled it up this morning. It's warm. We're trying to be kind. We've got baptismal robes, so you don't even have to worry about your clothes getting wet. What are we waiting for? When, when's, the, when's the right time to get saved? What day does the scripture say is the day of salvation? Today is the day of salvation. What do you need to be baptized? All you need is faith and a repentant heart. Desire to serve God and walk with God. That's all you need. Don't need a degree. Don't need a 12-week Bible study. You just need to believe that Jesus died for your sins. You need to repent of those sins and believe that he wants to wash those sins away. What are you waiting for? If I could have a musician, please. Just recently on a Friday night, I was with the young people down at the church. I love to get together with their young people. We had time of question and answer, and they put up with my oldness, and I put up with their youngness. And uh, really enjoy those opportunities because you get to 
hear their questions. You get to hear what's going on in their hearts and their minds and never profess to have all the answers, but it's good to talk about what God is doing. It's good to talk about what's happening and the way they're thinking about their lives. And it's, it's a powerful time. And we always give the young people an opportunity to, to uh, submit questions on paper anonymously in case they don't want to put their name on it, you know, because some of the questions are a bit curly sometimes, which is okay. And one of the questions that I had a week ago, I think it was, on the Friday night, was when is it too late to be baptized? Never had that question before. When is it too late to be baptized? It's too late to be baptized about one second after the trumpet sounds. If Jesus has come back, it's too late. I can't tell you when that's going to happen. But if you look around this world, if you're looking at anything that's going on in society, surely we're living in the last days. He's coming back for his church. He's coming back for a people, not all the good people, not all the educated people, not all those that are of pure Jewish heritage. He's coming back for those that are washed in his blood, those that have his name upon them, those that are filled with his spirit. He said, we didn't say it, he said, except a man be born again. Water and spirit cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. He said that. So when is it too late? That's a scary question to even think about. When is the right time? Today is the day of salvation. Stand with me if you would this morning. Hallelujah. I believe God is talking to some of us today. Right now, some of you are at the point of making a decision to get baptized or sitting in your excuse and putting it off to a better and a more appropriate time. Today is the day of salvation. We're going to worship the Lord. God's been talking to you. I want you to come stand at this altar with us. There's not a single person that's going to look at you poorly. In fact, everybody here that's born again is going to rejoice with you. And we're going to pray together. We're going to spend a few minutes just repenting. Even if you've repented before, we want to make sure we're just surrendering ourselves to Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. I feel the Holy Ghost in this place. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah. What's stopping you this morning? Is it a good reason? What, what, what reason is there that would stop me from having my sins washed away in Jesus' name? Hallelujah. Hallelujah.